So Vince Cable, very good to see you for 20 questions with. Thank you. you were, of course, business secretary from 2010 till 2015 in the Tory Lib Dem coalition government. You were a temporary leader of the Liberal Democrats before you became the, as it were, actual leader of, of the Liberal Democrats. And so you've had a, a lot of responsibility in your political career. You were MP for Twickenham. You still have an important voice on the British political scene. What was it like being an MP? Uh, well, it was initially rather overwhelming. I mean, I didn't become an MP till I was 54, and it was uh, 30 years after I first tried. So it was, um, you know, it was something I never expected to happen. It sort of came out of the blue, and it involved changing my lifestyle rather rapidly. Did it benefit you? And do you think it would benefit politicians in general, where more of them do have had a significant career before going into frontline politics? Uh, well, it didn't benefit me financially because I was relatively well paid as uh, Shell's chief economist, which is the job I had before I came into Parliament. Um, I think I think in general, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I suppose I, I, I'm naturally an advocate of diverse, um, you know, backgrounds, which is what I've had public, private sector, domestic, overseas. Um, I get the problem when you come in late is that a lot of people tended to have written you off already as being, quote, too old. Um, I'm now Biden's age. Uh, and certainly, I by the time I'd got to the cabinet and leader of the Labour uh, of the party, the, the kind of question is, when are you moving on? Uh, and so you're you're battling that the whole time. And I think probably from a strictly careeristic point of view, uh, getting in in your late thirties, early forties is probably an optimum time. What most concerns you about British politics at the moment? We were on stage just the other night, and I think you have a concern as to what might happen if Keir Starmer doesn't deliver in the first two years of his prime ministership, assuming that is, of course, Labour wins the next election. Yes, I, I am concerned about the country. I mean, obviously, I love it, and there are a lot of good things about Britain, and I wouldn't choose to live anywhere else. But uh, there are some very worrying things. I mean, I think, first of all, the economy is virtually stagnant as a result of very deep-rooted problems which have persisted not just from one government or another, but pretty much over a generation. Uh, and it's now very difficult to see how you're going to get much growth and therefore how you get much revenue growth uh, and the sort of built-in frustration. Uh, and uh, I worry on the top of that that the British electorate has got used to the idea of seeing politicians and particularly new governments as a kind of Santa Claus who brings things down the chimney. I mean, it isn't like that. Um, if we're going to achieve some of the things that people seem to be craving for, you know, better public services and particularly health, education, policing, they're going to have to be paid for by higher taxes. There doesn't seem to be an appetite for that. So we're we're heading into a, a difficult era with a potential change of government, um, you know, holding out hope, but, but very difficult in practice to see how the hopes will be realised. The danger of that, of course, is you then get a backlash, and the obvious backlash is a kind of right-wing populism, which is surfacing all over Europe and North America. 
How worrying is that, both abroad and here in Britain, do you think? Uh, well, it's it, it 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 it's very worrying if it gets out of control, um, and we've seen the, the havoc that's been wrought in in, in America by the Trump phenomenon. Uh, if we see something similar here, with you know extreme populism coming through the Tory Party, um, you know a, a great deal of damage to institutions. I mean, the, the part of the problem is that British democracy isn't working very well anyway. You know, the House of Commons isn't terribly representative. The House of Lords has become corrupted. Uh, we're we're beginning to get into some of the kind of dysfunctional stuff around social media becoming quite serious here. So if we then get a blast of of nationalism going through the political system, it's going to make it many times worse. And it coincides with similar things happening in America, in France, potentially, um, when the Macron era ends, potentially Germany, certainly already in Italy. Um, You know, Britain is a relatively weak economy uh, with a public that isn't seemingly recognize the things that have to be done and in a, a, a in an era when people in many countries are sort of losing faith with institutions so you added all that together and it's a rather toxic mix what did you mean by the house of lords becoming corrupted well you know as we know m- many of the appointments are made strictly on the basis of cronyism they're not made on merit uh, and in some cases are just bought with cash. Um, I've often you know, told about the anecdote of the uh, person who came up to me and said they've given £2 million to Mr Cameron's party, they haven't got a peerage, could I do any better? And that kind of um, open sale of peerages devalues the House of Lords as a legislative chamber. It should be fundamentally reformed. Do you think MPs are distracted or influenced by money. Of course, we have rules surrounding disclosure for MPs, and MPs are allowed to have other jobs. They have to dis- disclose them, and they have to disclose financial things that might that might influence them. But are the rules as they are enough? Do we actually live in a society where MPs can, not in an unlawful way, but nonetheless be bought off? Uh, I, I don't think that is a major issue. You use the word distracted. I mean, I think there is a, a legitimate point that quite a lot of MPs are distracted in terms of their use of time. Of course, if you spend a lot of time on um, an extra parliamentary activity, whether it's for money or for some, some other reason, you're not doing a, a difficult and demanding job. Um, I think that, you know, that, that is a bit of a problem. Um, I, I don't, I, I didn't come across any cases, certainly of any significance, of MPs being bought in, in respect of a, of a key vote. Um, MPs are pretty disciplined on um, you know, party voting through the whip system, uh, though there may be factions within a party, but they're not primarily driven by money. So, so the, the, there are corrupting elements in British politics, notably party donors who are pushing parties in one direction or another, uh, and as I said, seats in the House of Lords. But I don't think votes in the House of Commons are being bought for money. I certainly saw little evidence of it. Do you think that Labour are going to win the next election? And if you do, do you think they will be the, that they will be the outright winners or just the largest party? 
Well, it, it looks very much like it. There, is, there are very well-established trends, um, but there have been, we have been in this position before. 1992 is the obvious case. So I wouldn't completely rule out the Conservatives getting back. Um, if their current emphasis on immigration uh, continues to strike a chord, if they manage somehow or other to minimise or sideline the Reform Party, um, quite difficult. Uh, if they're lucky enough to get a, a sharp uptick in the economy and people feeling better through improved real wages, quite a lot of ifs. Um, maybe the Labour Party are making a big blunder, you know, as they have done before. Um, all of these things could bring them back. I wouldn't give it a probability of more than 10%, but you shouldn't rule it out. Uh, in terms of Labour getting back, I'm roughly equally divided between getting back with a comfortable majority, which is what the polls currently suggest, and getting back with uh, either a small majority or no majority at all. And there are various reasons for believing that's the case. They need they they need a lead of at least twelve percent to get a majority going into an election. There's bound to be a minority of Labour MPs who aren't completely reliable. Hangovers from the Corbyn era, for example. Um, and one can see all kinds of specific circumstances, say in Muslim seats or in Scotland, where the script might not play out in the way that um, sitting in London suggests. Are you able to identify any flagship areas in which you would be doing something different to what Keir Starmer is doing? No, it, I think I'd find that difficult because he is being very, very shrewd in the way he's conducting his operation. Um, everything from being setting very low expectations for what can be achieved in public spending. Um, I think the clever references to Thatcher were actually very well judged um, and, and right. Um, so, no, I wouldn't criticise him. He's been an outstanding leader of the Labour Party, you know, bringing it back from the Corbyn era in, what, three years flat is an extraordinary achievement. I think if I were in his shoes, I'm not saying I'd give this as advice, but, but my, my instinct would be to be a bit more brutal about the options facing us and to be say, look, I just want to be very honest with you, the public. It's, uh, you know, blood, sweat and tears. Uh, we can't rule out higher taxation if we're going to give you the services that you want. I, 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 that would be a big risk, uh, but I would I would take it. Do you think that we do need higher taxes? Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, people use this phrase about being the highest taxes since the war, which is true as a share of, of, of GDP, but that's pretty meaningless because we've had three extraordinary crises. We had the financial crisis, the pandemic, and most recently the war and the oil shock, all of which have required the government to intervene very heavily in order to protect the public from their consequences. And borrowing is deferred taxation. You know, the government quite sensibly borrowed heavily to cover these emergencies, and the tax has just been deferred. Uh, and the other point is that by European standards, Britain is not a particularly highly taxed country compared with Denmark. You know, it's over 50 percent of GDP. France, not far behind um, the Scandinavian countries, Germany, then they have much a much better public realm. 
um, the, the only reason Britain is so low is because we're, we're, we're trying to be like America in taxation um, while having aspirations to have European levels of spending. It just doesn't add up. So, I, no, I, I don't regard Britain as a highly taxed country. What sort of state do you think the public services are in at the moment? Well, they're pretty dire. The things I worry about most are not necessarily the headline uh, areas like health and social care. I mean, there's a kind of infinite demand for those. Um, but I do worry about the education system. Uh, it was very badly damaged by COVID. We can see from the PISA scores yesterday, Britain is, well, it's not hopeless, but um, lagging behind, you know, potential competitor countries. And I think we owe it to the uh, next generation, which suffered quite badly under COVID. So I would focus on education. Um, I worry about the declining policing in the, in the criminal justice system, the overcrowding of prisons. Those are the things that I would worry about most. You spoke earlier about the risks of populism. How difficult is it to be a politician and advocate for something that you know is necessary or think is necessary, but that you know is currently unpopular? Very, very difficult. And, you know, the few cases we've had of politicians who have been seriously courageous about this um, is it doesn't end very well. Um, I mean, I think probably in Macron is, the, to my mind, I, I know he's a very controversial politician, but uh, the most inspirational political leader at the moment, you know, he was willing to uh, go out on a limb on energy taxation and global warming in a country that wasn't very receptive to it. Um, and there's taken on these pension reforms. It had to be done. It's made himself public enemy number one. Um, so, yes, and I, I think probably the other example was going back a decade or so. Was it George Herbert Bush, read my lips, no higher taxes? And, of course, they had to increase taxes and he never recovered. So there isn't a great track record of politicians being, quote, brave. I think probably Margaret Thatcher was, but, um, you know, she was also quite a canny politician and was able to cash in on the Falklands War, which covered up some of the unpopularity from her domestic policies. But no, the, the history is um, being brave isn't something that the public like. You also mentioned immigration earlier. Where do you stand on immigration to Britain? Well, I think on balance, it's been good for the country um, economically. I, I don't see a problem with diversity. I rather like it. Um, much of what is called immigration isn't immigration. You know, overseas students go back home and they constitute quite a large chunk of net immigration. But where I, where I do have some sympathy with um, the, the more socially conservative approach here. Uh, I think are on two levels. First of all, I think people do need reassurance that it's under control, whether or not it's been liberal, but that it sense that, that governments can potentially control it. I think it's quite an important psychological factor. And I think of all the supposed negatives around immig immigration, many of the factors are not valid, but one which is, is the housing stock, can't blame immigrants for the fact that the successive governments haven't invested in housing, but nonetheless, it's um, you know pressure of demand on inadequate supply, uh, and is um, causing serious problems. What would you do as an incoming prime minister on immigration? Well, first of all, I would reduce the scare factor, um, which is produced by these very high numbers, by by the simple 
point of taking overseas students out of the total. They're about a third, I think. Um, they, they don't belong there. Um, overseas students go home. If you've paid £30,000 a year for tuition, you're not going to stay behind illegally to uh, pack, um, you know, grocery stores. I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense. So they're not net immigrants and should be taken out of the numbers. Um, I think I think the few of the um, changes that took place um, with Cleverly's announcement yesterday make a certain amount of sense. It was obviously wrong uh, that um, people employers should be bringing people in at a discount of I think twenty percent to the British wages. Um, so I think it's quite right to tighten up in that area. But there isn't a great deal of scope elsewhere. I, I think the prohibitive uh, salary levels fixed for people marrying somebody from overseas is just mean. And um, I feel strongly about having married a, a, an overseas student myself, um, 30 years of happy marriage. No, I, I think broad, broadly speaking, government shouldn't panic. Um, levels are going to go down anyway with the slow growth of the economy. We're still recovering from COVID. So I think panic isn't in order. Um, so I, I wouldn't be rushing to introduce tough new immigration controls. But again, don't we need politicians who have the skill set to spell out the advantages, say, of immigration, rather than simply desperately trying to, to cut figures because they think that that's what the public wants? Maybe it is what the public wants, but surely it's one of the roles of a politician to persuade them that actually there are needs here. Yes, I, th I think we need to show some sort of understanding. I, I think treating people who raise immigration issues as bigots isn't terribly helpful. There are genuine concerns, particularly around pressure on housing stock and therefore on rent and house prices, and that's a legitimate concern. But our experience has been that, that um, immigration phobia tends to be strongest in areas where there aren't any immigrants um, in the more remote parts and rural parts of the UK. So I think we, we, we do need to distinguish between objective problems that, that do need practical solutions and fear factors where politicians need to develop um, skill, as you put it, but it's a sort of mixture of empathy, uh, reassurance, but also seeing off uh, crude prejudice. Following the Liberal Democrats' five years in power with the Conservatives, they experienced something approximating electoral wipeout. Do you think now that they will bounce back in the next election? Well, I think they are bouncing back. It's a question of degree. Um, certainly in the last couple of years, there have been big advances in by-elections and local government. And local government matters because that builds the electoral base. I would be surprised and disappointed if they didn't come back with 30 MPs at the next election. It may be more than that. I, I, the, the qualification is that we had a bounce back like that when I was the party leader. Um, we, we had spectacularly good European elections. We're doing extremely well in local government. I think record numbers of gains. And then it was all lost in a general election because it was polarised essentially between, you know, did you want Corbyn or did you want Brexit? Um, and the Lib Dem voice was squeezed out. There's a risk of that happening again, of course. Are you proud of what you personally achieved, but the Lib Dems collectively achieved as part of that coalition, just 
despite the electoral penalties that you paid? Uh, the simple answer is yes. Um, uh, that government was, I think, very good for the country, though terrible for the party. And when you look at the impact on government and what was achieved, there were a whole lot of things. I mean, in, in terms of the big picture, it was providing stability at a time of maximum economic crisis. Um, it was the only way a stable government could be formed at that time. If you're looking at specifics, um, it was the Lib Dems who channeled the Conservatives' interest in tax cutting onto the low paid, um, specific innovations like the pupil premium. Uh, we were the socially progressive voice pushing for um, gay marriage uh, against considerable resistance. In my area of government, um, amongst the things I brought in, industrial strategy, which had major lasting implications for the car industry, the aerospace industry, the bioscience industry, I introduced the catapult network to promote innovation, which is doing a vast amount of stuff with uh, small, medium-sized companies, the British Business Bank that saw us, saw us through the pandemic, um, and although it, it it earned us a lot of unpopularity, we put university finance on a stable footing and got m many more people from derived backgrounds through the university system. That was, of course, immensely unpopular amongst Lib Dem voters. I think it's fair to say that it turned out that the, the Nick Clegg pledge on tuition fees being reversed once you were in government, no regrets on that. No, I, I don't have any regrets. There are particular aspects of student policy which are not working well. I mean, the interest rates on loans are far too high. That was insisted on by the Treasury for reasons I can never understand. Um, I, I, I'm in favour of lifting the threshold, so you have to be quite a high earner before you start paying paying back. But the principle was a good one, uh, and it's kept universities from bankruptcy. The, the damage was done, in my view, not by the policy, because no, you know, the Labour Party is not suggesting changing it. Um, the pro it was not the policy, it, it was the pledge. And I think it goes back to our earlier conversations that I think one of the big lessons is do not go into elections pledging things which in the real world you're not going to be able to deliver because it's a terribly corrosive effect on trust. You mentioned in passing that you experienced resistance in your advocacy for gay marriage. Where was that resistance coming from? Well, there were parts of the Tory party that, that really didn't like it. I don't I don't think it was a problem for people like David Cameron and Osborne. They, they were socially liberal people. They didn't have any trouble with it. But we we were in a partnership with with a uh, conservative government and many of their MPs as we now know are uh, very socially conservative on many issues and that was one of them something i'm really curious about is the question of austerity because those who have a, a real beef with the tories often cite it seems to me that that period of austerity under the stewardship of david cameron and george osborne but you of course were the business secretary at the time. And I wonder whether you would still stand by austerity now. Yes, I, I, I do justify um, in broad terms what we had to do in the coalition. There, there were particular aspects of it I disagreed with, but and I argued in government, but uh, the broad strategy was unavoidable. The, the country had a massive deficit on the budget. Um, it was very clear that if the 
government was continue, going to continue to borrow in international markets, which it has to do, it had to demonstrate an ability to cut the deficit. And that's, that was true of previous Labour governments, if you remember, you know, the IMF and before that, Roy Jenkins. The next Labour government is committed to fiscal discipline. So that shouldn't be uncontroversial. The, there is an argument about whether we should have put less pressure on public spending and had higher tax increases. And certainly that would be my inclination. But there was no appetite in the country to go down that road. I don't ever recall the critics of austerity coming out and saying, let's have more higher taxes because we want to uh, preserve this or that public service. It's, it's, it's a lot, There's a lot of dishonesty around the use of this phrase austerity. My own personal disagreements with my colleagues in government, my conservative colleagues, uh, were around the fact that we cut public investment because that wasn't strictly necessary to deal with the deficits on the current budget. It's not not straightforward because you still have to borrow and the Treasury would argue that the bond markets would have trouble with borrowing for investment. Um, but I, I think we probably could and should have taken more risks on that front. What do you mean then by public investment? Isn't that the, at the heart of what austerity was? Wasn't austerity about not investing in public services? Well, I think you're you're using language that and I realise is part of the common discourse. Now, I think there's a distinction between current spending, which is public sector pay essentially for you know day to day spending. And investing in infrastructure, you know, roads and railways and, uh, you know, long term investment. And and that's the area that we should have been um, doing things. Uh, And there was a deep cut in public investment that made our infrastructure worse. Um, But it wouldn't. We're not talking about the amount of day to day spending on, on education and health and the rest of it, because that that's. That, that's different. And any government was going to be taking tough decisions on that. Vince, you have, a, I think, a big interest in China. And I wonder whether you personally have business interests in China. But more broadly, how do you think we as a country should engage with this superpower that as well as being of economic interest to us, has stood accused by the UK of genocide against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. The UK parliament asserted that China has committed genocide and China denies this. But I'm really interested in in your take. Yeah, first of all, I don't have any personal business interests, whatever. I'm just interested in it as somebody who's been in... at the the future of China and potentially India as the new superpowers, and I just thinking for the next generation, you know, how do, how do we deal with this? That's subject I'm writing books about. I'm you know giving lectures at the LSE. I'm interested intellectually. I'm not interested in it from a personal gain point of view. Um, I have developed this interest initially um, in the private sector when I worked with Shell, but then as as a member of the coalition government, David Cameron. Uh, was very keen that we uh, put in a maximum effort to cultivating the big emerging markets, which were China, India, Brazil, amongst others. And I spent a lot of time going backwards and forwards as part of that mission. In terms of my future approach, I mean, I take the view that the Chinese government is not to my taste. I mean, I wouldn't, (laughs) I'm not enthusiast for authoritarian government. 
uh, I wouldn't want it here. But nonetheless, we in the real world, you know, they are now a superpower comparable in at least in economic terms with the USA. We share the same planet. It's in our mutual interest that we work with them on common issues like global warming, climate change, where China is the biggest contributor to the problem at the moment, but also the biggest source of solution through their advanced technology and development in renewables. Um, and I, you know, I also believe in you know economic success and prosperity, and a, a world that's closing in on itself with protectionism um, and closed borders of the kind we're beginning to see, partly as a result of this geopolitical conflict, is not healthy. Uh, so I would want to see closer engagement with China for environmental and economic reasons. And part of that, just building up a better understanding of where the Chinese are coming from and understanding their history. Not None of us speak their language, hardly any of us. And we should be getting around that. On your final point about genocide, I mean, we're partly it's about a word, right? If genocide is narrowly defined to be killing large numbers of people of a particular group, as in the Jewish Holocaust and Rwanda, that would be utterly appalling and unforgivable. But nobody, I think, is seriously suggesting that that's happening. What is happening is clearly very nasty. It is a counterterrorism operation that's been pretty brutal and indiscriminate and has locked up large numbers of people. And there is serious abuse of human rights and understand that. But if we're talking about genocide in that very broad sense, then there are about 30 countries, I think, at the moment, um, which are on the genocide watch list. Uh, they include countries we're currently trying to be very friendly to, like India, Indonesia, um, even Israel, I think, is on the list. Um, so I think we should be very careful about the use of language here. But what list is that, Vince? Well, there is something called Genocide Watch, which um, looks at different countries in the world, assigns the degree of risk attached to them. Of course, they're talking about genocide as a degree rather than as some sort of absolute horrific phenomenon. And uh, China is certainly on the list, uh, as I say, a large numbers of other countries which we do business with and want to do business with. I haven't got that list to hand, but uh, but listeners can, of course, find it for themselves and, and check it. Yeah. Is there such a thing, building on, on this question, is there such a thing as an ethical foreign policy? Robin Cook was famous, wasn't he, for wanting an ethical foreign policy, I think, when he was foreign secretary under Tony Blair. Can such a, can such a thing exist in the real world? I think it's very difficult, to be frank. Um, I think if you're a, a superpower, you can impose your values on others. Um, and if, if your values include, you know, high ethical standards, you can impose them and make other countries conform. Um, we're not no longer in that position. Uh, when I was business secretary, I was also president of the Board of Trade. I was responsible for trade policy. So this issue kept arising. And in one particular area, which was arms export licensing, I did try to apply uh, an ethical approach, uh, which... Um, caused controversy in government over, for example, whether we continue supplying bombs to Saudi Arabia when they were bombing hospitals um, in the, the last Gaza war, not this one. Do you say Saudi Arabia or Israel? <clears throat> no, Saudi Arabia was the first case, but uh, in the second, in the Gaza war, of course, it was Israel and the Palestinians. 
and I did invoke my powers to um, re reduce approvals of arms exports, but it was ran into strong opposition elsewhere in government. So that was a limited application of an ethical foreign policy. But I think it's it's now becoming difficult, if not impossible, for the British to lay down the law and say, we will not deal with country X or Y or Z because we disagree with their political system or their human rights record. If it can be done collectively, preferably through the United Nations, um, then it has some chance of succeeding. But if it's one or other Western countries just wagging a finger I think it's often counterproductive. I've only got one more question, so I'm going to have to cheat and ask you about dancing as a 21st. But very quickly, can you give us your summary of how successful or otherwise Brexit has proved? You, you were clearly heavily in favour of Remain. Has it turned out so far as badly as you imagined it would? Well, I think it's important to say that um, I think some of the critics of Brexit before the referendum overstated the case you know the idea that the economy would just collapse was was ridiculous and because it didn't um i think a lot of people shrugged their shoulders and said well you know it's neither one thing or the other and of course it was overwhelmed by the impact of the pandemic but having said that it's very clear that there've been negative economic consequences we can argue about whether this is 2 3 or 4% of the national economy but certainly it's taken a hit and have therefore affected people's living standards. It's affected the amount of government revenue, therefore the amount that we can spend on public services. Um, numerous reports, uh, surveys of small, medium companies, particularly who are handicapped by red tape. Um, yes, it, it's very clear there'd be negative consequences. There are a few upsides. Uh, very few of these promised trade agreements have materialized. The one that would actually make a difference, like America, they're not interested. China, that would probably be too controversial. So we've had a series of trade agreements with countries which we don't do much trade with and uh, with very little positive effect. So, and the one thing, of course, that the, the Brexit voters were concerned about, which was reducing immigration, it's had no effect or probably the opposite effect. So dancing, I arranged for you many years ago to dance with Alicia Dixon, because you were, you had stated publicly, I think that you were a fan of dancing. And from that grew, I think, your appearance in a, a Strictly Come Dancing Christmas special. Do you still dance? Do you still love dancing as much as you did? You're 80 years old now, I think. And what are the trophies over your right shoulder? Are they anything to do with dancing? Because there are a lot of them. Yeah, I, it, it's it's quite an important part of my life. I kept it going through the coalition the government. It was incredibly difficult finding a regular couple of hours a week, but I did, and I still do. Um, uh, it's it, it's massively valuable for mental health because you're just concentrating entirely on something totally different from your day day to day preoccupations. It's very good for physical fitness. I combine it with workouts in the gym. Um, yeah, so I'd strongly recommend it. Uh, I've reached a reasonable standard. Uh, I do competitions now. Um, I used to do exams, then I do competitions. And uh, as a hobby for people of all ages, it's very strongly to be recommended. Are those your trophies in the background? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I hadn't realized I was showing them off in the background. Yeah, they are. I've got, got dozens of them. Dancing trophies. Yes, um, mostly from examinations.
yeah, it's a bit like music where you do stage exams and the same applies in music. So I I, I think I, I got up to quite a high level, sort of interplanetary three or something. I, I forgot what it was called, but but yeah, I've done lots of exams and there's some trophies to show for it. Before I let you go, I think it's true that you wear two wedding rings because you yeah. you, you mentioned your happy marriage to your first wife yeah, and right. you're also mm-hmm. happily married to your second wife. You lost your first wife sadly to illness but, but you continue to wear that wedding ring yeah there's two two wonderful relationships two lovely women and i think you know i'm delighted to be able to celebrate it i'm surprised more people do that a lot of people have had second relationships um for good or bad reasons um but yeah we should celebrate it and i'm, I'm deeply indebted to both of them so vince gable really interesting to talk to you thank you so much for answering my 20 questions